Well, again, good morning. And, um, you know, as we have participated in personal testimony, we've participated in communal testimony, it ties in many ways to the series we've been in, which is one another. Right? We've engaged different ways to interact and be with one another. Uh, bear one another's burdens, welcome one another, confess to one another, share with one another. These are ways that we have tried to frame out for us over this fall season uh, how we might engage each other as the church, as Christians, as the body of Christ. And it relates for us today, because today we're going to look at the idea of speaking truth, but there's two ways to look at it in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are 132 conversations that Jesus speaks. 132 of them. And in these uh, interactions, he does it variety of settings, variety of content, variety of audience. Sometimes it happens in the, um, as he's walking, right, along the way. It happens in boats, in temples, in synagogues. Interestingly enough, just as an aside, the conversations Jesus has, six of them happen in the synagogue, four happen in the temple, and the other 122 are out and about, outside of the religious establishment. So again, we're not going to dwell there too long, but it's just an interesting note. Like Jesus wasn't located in just one spot to speak. He spoke 122 times outside of the temple and the synagogue. It makes us imagine like he had a varied setting that he spoke into. Also the content, right? Like he spoke in a variety of forms and ways. So sometimes he gave a sermon. Other times he gave parables. Sometimes just probing questions. Like he spoke with variety of content. And then the same way to audience. Anyone and everyone. Right? As a religious figure, perhaps he might have been expected to just speak to a certain group of people, but he spoke to everyone. He spoke to governors, right? He spoke to um, people who were uh, over taxes, and he spoke to the people who were taking up the taxes. He spoke to Jews and Gentiles, right? Children. Um, He spoke to demons. He spoke to a whole wide range of people. And so in all of this variety— Uh, With all of this diversity, it might be difficult to find, like, what is the one thread or what is a thread that connects across all of these different places? 132 conversations. What is one thing that holds that all together? One thing that I think we can see in the speech of Jesus is that no matter where it happened, who it happened to, what form it happened in, Jesus spoke truth. Jesus spoke truth. And if you're a follower of Christ, he invites us to do the same. And so for us today, we're going to look at that as it relates to how do we speak truth to one another, and more importantly, how do we speak truth with one another. Our, our passage this morning reinforces this invitation. It comes from Ephesians 4, 25 through 27, and you can follow along with us on the screen. Um, this is from the uh, CJB version, the Complete Jewish Bible. And I, I'll, I'll highlight why we go to that translation in a second. 
Um, but read these words uh, from Ephesians 4, 25 through 27. Therefore, stripping off falsehood, let everyone speak truth with his neighbor. Because we are intimately related to each other as parts of a body. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down before you have dealt with the cause of your anger. Otherwise, you leave room for the adversary. And so, when we look at translations of the Bible, I did a survey of 45 translations this week for this particular verse. And it's interesting to note that 13 of them translate this as not speak with your neighbor, speak truth with your neighbor, but speak truth to your neighbor. And one of the interesting things is most of those translations are modern translations. If you look at classic translations of this verse, uh, they're all going to say speak truth with your neighbor or speak truthfully with, um, with each other. And it's interesting, like, how we get to that conclusion, um, there's a lot of opinion about, like, why these variances happen. Like, 30-something will land on speak truth with, 13 will speak on um, speak truth, or will land on speak truth to one another. And with that idea that I want us to think about how we engage each other and the prospect of speaking at all. In this season, it feels right to say that we speak a lot to each other. We speak truth to each other a lot. Last week, Jack highlighted uh, some of the ways that social media can make the world feel inhospitable. It, it, it forms us so that we're not welcoming one another. It sets us up in a posture to not do that. In the same way, perhaps that is also a space where we speak to each other, but we're not speaking with each other. And we speak truth to each other, post something, and then that gets... Um, that gets sent out to people who will agree and people who won't agree in that polarizing way. And then it conditions us to engage each other as friend and foe, right? Like, if I'm going to speak truth to you, if I'm going to give something to you, bring something to you, it sets me up in a way that says, I'm out here, you're over here, and I'm bringing something that will enlighten you, will save you, will make your life better. It's in many ways similar to how we talk about passing on the faith. Right? When we say we're going to pass on the faith to someone, think about the image. Sometimes it's like, I have a light, and then there's no light over here. My children don't have light, but I'm going to pass the faith on to them. So let me come and light their torch, and then they're the ones who then will bring and pass on their torch and pass on their torch. And so we take something and we bring it to another person. But if we change that idea, instead of passing on the faith— to let's co-discover the faith that is in you as you're created in the image of God. That changes the way that we imagine what faith looks like. It changes what happens from the stage. It changes how we teach. It's a recognition that God is already at work in the world in front of us, and God invites us into the garden of creation to partner into making the cosmos a better place. Speak truth with one another. This makes a huge difference in terms of how we engage our faith. I have an analogy. Some of you know that I coach soccer. And so um, 
In my early years of coaching, U7, U9, oftentimes my coaching during the course of a game would look something like this. I'm going to take this down so it won't be too loud. Uh, this would be what a game looks like. So the goal's over here and be like, hey, uh, Ben, tuck in, tuck in. Hey, defense, step up, step up, stay wide. Uh, you pop over there, yep. Um, cross in over there, back post, back post. Goal, we score, we win the championship, good stuff. Uh, <laughs> that happens at U7, great. So there, that's one way of coaching that happened early on in my career. And then as I started getting more credentials, uh, climbing the ladder, so to speak, more licensing, and started coaching at higher levels with crowds, you can't do that. You just can't do it. Because one, they won't hear you. The field's bigger. Two, they're not going to listen to you because <laughs> it's not about micromanaging the game. And everything in my coaching style had to change. Right? I couldn't just speak commands to my players so that they do something on the field. Instead, the coaching work, and this is what, the game, what, what action in the game looks like now if I'm coaching. It looks like this. I talk to the assistant and say, take note of this for halftime. We've got to get him out. All right, hey, let's regroup, cycle back. Hey, uh, how might you make a better decision next time you run into that? What can we do over here to stop that from happening? Now that I coach at higher levels, that's the approach, right? Because there's just not enough time to dictate my voice to 11 players. And there's also not enough energy to do that. That first model, you do that for 90 minutes, you're more tired than your players. I mean, you're talking the whole time. But beyond that, it's not even as effective because it sets them up to be reliant on me. I then become the pinch point, the bottleneck for everything else that happens in the team. And it's not an effective way to coach. It does work up to like U11, but then kids grow up. The game gets more complex. The field gets bigger. Things move faster. And I had to learn to adapt to think about how do I speak truth with my players, have them discover a situation and come up with solutions that I might not even think of and see from my seat. I think that illustrates in many ways what we're aiming for when we look at the difference between speaking truth to someone and then speaking truth with someone. One is a command that says, here's what I have, mimic it, replicate it, do what I say. The other over here says, Discover this with me. Teach me as I teach you. Let's learn together and let's collaborate. Speak truth with one another. Speak truth to each other. The distinction between speaking truth to people or speaking truth with people, again, it makes all the difference. And in this passage today that we looked at, it says, therefore, verse 25, Stripping off falsehood, let everyone speak truth with his neighbor. Because we are intimately related to each other as parts of the body. Again, there's a world of difference between speaking truth to and speaking truth with. And in Matthew 16, we see that he, Peter, you know, he takes an approach of handling truth and revelation 
that makes it, in many ways, turn. Let's look at the story real quick. Think about it. So Peter confesses that Jesus is Lord. Jesus says, who do you say I am? And this passage happens, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it's an important story especially, right? It's emphasized multiple times. He says, who do you think, who do you say that I am? And the disciples say, um, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Moses. Some say you're a prophet. And then Jesus, he zeroes in the question. He says, yeah, yeah. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And in that speech, in that question, Peter stands up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, And Jesus says, yes, you are correct. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This is good. And on this church or on this rock, Peter, I'm going to build my church. So we've just seen that Peter has revelation. He has something of substance. Like there's truth within him. He holds that well. He receives truth, and Jesus acknowledges and says, that is truth. You didn't just make this up. Like, you've received this from the Father. Does anyone remember what happens next? Right after, Jesus says, I'm going to uh, suffer, and this temple, it will die. Um, It'll be raised up again, but I am going to suffer. I'm going to experience hard things. I'm going to die. And then it says, Peter takes him aside, and he speaks to him and says, Surely not, Lord. This won't happen to you. You can't do that. You're the Messiah. I mean, I just told you. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. And then Jesus responds and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. In that moment, right, we see that Peter has an idea. He has a revelation of truth, but how he handles that truth causes him to bring that in a way that doesn't recognize what is actually happening in the story. And he's speaking truth to Jesus when Jesus is the truth. And in many ways opens up space for him to discover what that even looks like in the rest of his life. And so Peter, in this story, he speaks to Jesus. He speaks truthfully to Jesus, but that doesn't make him a truer person. And so how then, it raises a question for us, how then do we speak at all? How do we speak to Jesus? How do we speak with Jesus? How do we hold truth and engage the world well? When we think about speaking truth in our culture, it's easy to conflate speaking truth with the idea of, I'm just going to tell it like it is. I'm going to let fly, right? Sometimes we say, I'm just going to give you the honest truth, and then you just unload on someone, right? Or say, I'm just going to tell it like it is. Uh, I'm a truthful guy, an honest guy, and um, here's what I think. And then we, we let it go, right? And many times we, we think speaking truth looks like that. But I want to give you three images that stand out there are snapshots of interactions Jesus has that can instruct how we might speak truth in better ways, okay? So three images. The first one is this. When Jesus engages the disciples and he's talking with them, the Pharisees, they come along, and uh, this is in Matthew 12, and the Pharisees are there, they're present, and they're kind of critiquing everyone. 
They're critiquing the disciples. They're asking questions about uh, what's happening and like, how can it be that the Lord does this? And then Jesus turns and he says, you brood of vipers, right? He calls them a brood of vipers and then rebuts all that they've been saying. But that's the key idea I want us to look at. Brood of vipers. Now, how we read a text oftentimes tells us more about ourselves than it does the text itself, right? The text opens up on us to then reveal what is in our hearts. And if you're anything like me, when I read that, sometimes I'm like, yes, Jesus, like, let them have it. You let fly, right? Like, you're finally holding them accountable, and you're taking a dig. But this is the difference between Jesus and me, right? This is, this is the distinction. Where I see Jesus speaking retributively, speaking with revenge, speaking in a way that is countering wrong, right? That's confronting injustice, that's stepping up and uh, being retributive. What Jesus is doing is he's being revelatory, right? He's not being retributive. He's not taking avenge. He's being revelatory. That changes the entire context of what's happening. Because remember, in the Old Testament, the beginning story in Genesis, we have the, the serpent who is the deceiver. And as Jesus says, you're now a brood of vipers, he's telling them that their identity with the ways that they've been misspeaking about God isn't just changing their identity into something that they're not created to be. It's also poisoning others. And in doing so, it's replicating and uh, modeling a way of being that isn't true to who God has created us to be. He's not being retributive. He's just saying, this is what you will become in the language, in the image, in the metaphor that they will be very familiar with. So, I, I, you know, speaking truth, speak truth to people. I, I would say, like, yeah, this is what I want to do. And Jesus says, no, 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 like speak truth with them. Help them understand in their vernacular what the gravity of their actions is doing. This is what he does. He speaks truth with the Pharisees in an image that makes sense to them. Brood of vipers. That's your first image. Second image is this. When Jesus is in front of Herod, right, and he is um, he's being charged on, um, or he's being brought up on charges that the Pharisees have brought against Jesus. And Herod and Jesus are interacting, and Herod's talking to him. Jesus responds to Herod by saying, Herod, you are a fox. Like, you sly fox. God is like a, a, a mother hen. I'm going to be like a mother hen who feeds chickens and roosts. Now, like, that's a weird image that we think of, right? We have this idea of Jesus calling someone a fox, and oftentimes— if we think about it, we're thinking, well, he's like taking a dig. He's like, you're a sly fox. You're, uh, you're sneaky, right? You're, you're a little erratic. But when Jesus is talking in this way, again, he's not being retributive. He's being revelatory. And he's revealing in that moment something about the nature of the church and the nature of God. In the time, at that time, there was a famous saying that said, 
if you were in a rabbinical structure and a rabbi who came in who was older, had more seniority in the, in the tabernacle, if they came in and said, um, said something that might overrule you, you're supposed to, as a rabbi, say, how am I supposed to respond to you when I am in the presence of a lion? So this imagery of fox would say, how do I, as a fox, stand a chance in this community to speak to you who is a lion? That's like, uh, it's, a, it's an image that is deferring uh, responsibility and it's deferring authority in a religious context. So when Jesus uses this image and says, you, you're a fox, he's revealing that, Herod, like, you think you have all the power. You think you're a lion. You're not that. But then he takes the image even further and he reveals that the kingdom Jesus is trying to establish is one of a chicken that gets eaten by foxes, and lions. Like, he has no power. He's revealing that my kingdom isn't like your kingdom at all. Like, you, as a fox, you can fight the other lions. You can fight about governance. You can fight about power. You can fight Pilate. I mean, this is a political game for you. My life isn't like that. The people who follow me, we're not like that. We're chickens. You both can eat us. Doesn't matter. Our power isn't found in being able to overcome. It's being found in our ability to discover how God is at work in and around us, to cultivate, to be present. So we have snakes, we have foxes, and the last one is friend. The last one is friend. As Jesus is engaging um, in Matthew 12, and he's saying, to his disciples and to the crowds, how do you engage the world? He gives them an instruction to try and frame out what it looks like to be um, someone who lives well, who stewards life well. And he says, friends, no longer treat yourselves as slaves or servants. Don't do that. Because in the way that you interact with me, in the way you have relationship with me, you're my friend. Like, we're not linked by kinship, so to speak. Like, we don't have to share the same bloodline. But we are so closely connected to each other that even that line between friend and foe and friend and family, like, you are my friend. Join me, friends, in the way that we live with the world. And can you also treat the rest of the world in that way? Can you model your life in such a way that as we engage someone else, it's not transactional. It's not that my relationship with this person is one of transaction or servitude. It's one of saying, my, my relationship with you and your relationship with others should be one of friendship. One that isn't transactional in that way. One that cares about the well-being. And one that then eventually will wrap into the family of God. This is a progression that we'll see throughout Matthew. So our three images, right? What are they again? We have snakes, we have foxes, and we have friends. Three ways that Jesus speaks truthfully with us, with one another. And it invites us to think about if this is true, if Jesus is tailoring his language to speak, one, in the vernacular, in the context of the people he's aiming for, two, if he does it in a way that 
embodies, again, the, the presence and the setting. He's present with them in ways that reframe, perhaps, ideas they have. And then three, if he is engaging in a model that says, again, we are not uh, distant. This is the community of God that we're trying to frame out. It brings us to this final idea. How do we accept these ideas and these truths from Jesus that inspire us in the future? How do we do it? How do we apply this to our life? The last story I want us to think about is this one. We, we have the story in... Um, there's, a, there's a story which we all know well, which is the rich young ruler, right? And if we look at the subtitle for that story, oftentimes that guides what we glean from the passage itself. And so the story we center and focus on his wealth. It says that there was a man who um, came to Jesus, and he asked, what, does, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do, Jesus? And Jesus responds and says, he starts quoting the, the, the commandments, right? He says, like, don't murder, don't steal, don't do these things. And then the young man says, all these things I have kept from my youth. And then Jesus says, you have everything. Like, you've done everything. You're, you have it all checked off in the boxes. The one thing you lack is this. And then he doesn't tell us what that one thing is. Have you ever looked at the story and noticed that? He says, you lack one thing. And we never find out what it is. Now, oftentimes we imply that because later on in the story it says the man was wealthy. And so we immediately think, he had too many things. If he gets rid of things, then he's in the kingdom of God. Right? Like that's what we assume happens. But it doesn't say what the one thing is. Jesus says, there's one thing you lack. And he says, um, or, and then it just is silent. It doesn't go on. Now, right after that, the text then says, the man was wealthy and he was sad. He was sad. My question is, what do you give? I mean, we're coming to Christmas time, so perhaps this is relevant. What do you give to the one person who has everything and who, if they don't have it, they'll go buy it because they're very particular about their thing? I'm speaking about myself. Uh, <laughs> like, what, what do you do in that setting? How do you engage that person? If you have everything you need, well, the one thing that that person lacks, if they have everything, perhaps is this. They have everything, they know everything, but they don't have anyone to share that with. Right? If you have everything, like, you don't need anyone else. In many ways, this story can be read as a story about a man and his insistence on self-sufficiency. I don't need anyone else. I don't, have, I don't have to have anything else. I have everything, and I've kept the law since my youth. Everything I've got. And then Jesus says, you lack one thing. What is that one thing? Perhaps it is that he is so insistent on having everything and being by himself that he cuts out the one thing that can bring the goodness of God into his life. Other people. This is how the story reads us. 
right? We are conditioned in a way to speak truth to each other. Again, I wasn't able to get to the bottom of why most modern translations say speak truth to each other, not speak truth with. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what that is. The King James will defer to let's speak truth with. Some of the older, more like interlinear texts will say speak truth with one another, speak truthfully with each other. But the modern translations, for whatever reason, they did, many of them trend towards speaking to. I, I don't have the answer to that, but it's worth exploring. All that to say, though, in these stories, how have, and as we've thought about this whole series, how have we been framed and shaped to think and engage each other? If there's one wish we, as a church, have and have had for us this fall— it really does kind of land on that one thing. How might we engage each other in better ways? And so personal story, personal testimony, that's one way. Recognizing our communal story, our corporate story, that's another way. But all of that held in the tension of how do we do life with each other in a way that presses us to recognize that God does not make us to just be islands. God does not make us to just be self-sufficient. We're not saved from having to engage life with each other. We're saved for the sake of it, and we're also saved through our relationship with each other. In many ways, that's why this space matters. That's why we do this thing. Sunday mornings, here, in space, online, if you can't join us. Like, there's ways to engage that we're continuing to think about as we become the body and the presence of Christ. So as we think about, and uh, as we close, I want us to take this idea of being with each other, speaking truth with each other, in a way that invites how we might do that better. And so if you would, join me for a prayer. What we're going to do is do a short meditation And this meditation is going to just ask us to reflect on how we live and with whom do we live. You know, we have that idea of formation, vocation, reconciliation. Those three ideas, famous shuns that are, uh, like, they're common right now. And those three things, they kind of all hinge on the same kind of question. Formation is, who am I? Vocation is, what do I do or who am I becoming? And then reconciliation is for whom am I becoming? To whom am I becoming? When you take one of those questions and just meditate on that as I lead us through a short, uh, a short prayer. If you would, close your eyes, find a comfortable space, find a posture. Let's engage these questions truthfully and honestly. Formation is a question that asks, who am I? Vocation is a question that asks, who am I becoming? And reconciliation is a question that asks, for whom? To whom am I becoming? Holy God, we are grateful for this time. 
this time to pause and this time to reflect. This time to hear about what you have been doing in our lives. And this time to reflect on how you invite us to engage other people's lives. As we reflect on who we are and who you're making us to be, we pray that you would reveal your goodness in our lives and reveal what you have for each of us and what you have for all of us. God, we want to be people of truth. We want to be people who speak truth. We recognize there's times to speak to people, but also we pray that you would show us how we might speak with people. Show us how we can speak truth with each other in faithful ways. And by the power of your spirit, might we come to know your fullness in ways that make us truer people. May we handle truth well, May we handle revelation and decipher it well. And may we recognize your truth through the personhood of children, adults, friends, and even enemies. Be near to us, Lord. And may we discern your spirit. We pray this with Christ by the power of your spirit. And everyone said, amen.